podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. We hope you enjoy this sermon. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Good morning, Redeemer. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 18 and read through verse 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you are our refuge, our fortress, our shield. And today, by the grace of your spirit, I pray you would gather us underneath the shadow of your wing, that there we would might be able to find hope, that we would find light, that we would be able to, more than anything, find the redeeming power of your infinite love. Lord, thank you that you, you love us, that you more than just tolerate us, but that you, you actually love us even in our worst, even at our ugliest, even when we're broken, and that by the power of that love, you redeem us and make us whole. Lord, we pray that today we would encounter you in such a way that we would be able to be remade and redeemed and sent forth to be able to declare your beauty to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have your seat. Feminism is one of those words that's unbelievably loaded right now. It's a word that is polarizing. It is political. But believe it or not, about 100 years ago, it was actually a uniquely Christian term. Uh, evangelical Christians, nonetheless. It was, it was a movement that began to be able to um, uh, be drawn up in the grassroots to be able to, to do good in the nation of America, and particularly in this nation, it was a, a movement that acknowledged that women were created in the likeness of God, that they were created in the image of the likeness of God. Therefore, they were worthy of dignity and value. And so evangelical Christians that were feminists actually were the ones that, by and large, led the movements for women's suffrage. They led the movements for the passing of the 19th Amendment that allowed women to be able to participate in political society and the political process and be able to vote. And um, that was something that was, that was done actually from a biblical, even a theological rationale. Um, you wouldn't know that today, though, um, because uh, today in our, our culture, feminism has taken on somewhat more uh, of a different tone, hasn't it? Rather than being associated with the worldview of, of Christianity and being made in the image and likeness of God, it has more of this kind of quasi-Marxist feel to it, to where it's a militant feminism. 
where in order to be able to achieve dignity and value of women, they have to necessarily be at odds with men because power, we think, is a zero-sum game. One of the great ironies of one of the more modern versions of feminism is oftentimes, instead of celebrating femininity, it actually tends to exalt and lift up as virtue some of the very worst attributes of bad, broken masculinity. Things like sexual promiscuity, abandoning the home, being cutthroat and ruthless and, and arrogant in order to be able to get ahead in the workplace. Um, these are things that, that oftentimes women unapologetically aspire to in, in the name of women's liberty. And the question that I would want to ask and want Christians to be able to ask is, is what is true femininity? How, how is it to be celebrated? How is it to be understood and how God created it to exist, how God created it to be. And that's the topic of our study today. We've been talking about the Imago Dei, what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. That humanity was created by God, and he created humanity male and female, and that according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that this is actually a part of how we image God is through maleness, through femaleness. This is that verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now last week, we went into Genesis chapter 2, the earlier part, and we looked in detail at the creation account of Adam, the first man. And from that, we extrapolated and tried to be able to understand how the idea of manhood is connected to humanity's task of bearing the image of God. And today, I want to look at the text before us today that records how the very first woman was made and how this concept of womanhood is connected to, it's related to how humanity is to be able to bear the image of God. And as I said last week, I want to be able to give you a few preparatory uh, remarks on how to be able to listen to this sermon. Number one is um, when you're looking into the Bible, it's not helpful to be able to say, you know, man and woman are essentially the same thing. You know, any notion of gender differences is just a construct of society. Um, that, that's obviously against common sense. That's against reality as we know it. But equally and opposite, it is also wrong to be able to say men and women are completely different in every way. Every conceivable way, they're completely different. Um, because I, I think there are going to be some things today that we look at in terms of how God created the woman, that are also going to be relevant to men. In the same way that we looked at some things about men last week that are equally relevant to women. And so these are things where we're going to be able to acknowledge similarity, but also a difference at the same time, and, and try to resist that urge to have a simplistic or reductionist view of humanity and gender. Secondly, uh, one of the things that we have to be able to do is, I encourage you, if you're, you're a woman, um, to be able to Open your heart with humility and honesty um, to see how the Word of God um, would be able to uh, lovingly confront you, lovingly challenge you, lovingly maybe push back against some of our cultural predispositions, and at the same time encourage you. And if you're a man, especially if you're a married man or you're here with your girlfriend, um, I encourage you, let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. Whenever we're talking about, you know, some of the brokenness of womanhood, don't lean over and say, hey, are you taking notes on that one? I, 
I, I think you should really, really pay attention to that point. You know, um, that's probably not going to be helpful, and in fact, that will likely be very, very counterproductive. And, and so, um, what we're going to do is we're going to dive in, and I want to look at three ideas from this text. We're going to look at the design of womanhood. We're going to look at number two, the brokenness of womanhood. And number three, we're going to talk about the redemption of womanhood. So number one, the design of womanhood. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to be able to hold a brand new born baby boy or baby girl. And there's something so special uh, about that child, especially when they're so young, they're so new. There's, there's a type of smell that's amazing, um, the, the newborn smell. Um, last week, I walked into the room of my four-year-old and my two-year-old, and I, and I told my wife, what, on, what in the world is that smell? What's going on there? And she said, that's just boys. That's what they smell like. And it's all of a sudden that there's been that transition that's happened to where even though they're just two, even though they're just four, there's this, this smell that is happening. And I walk and I'm like, whatever this is, it isn't good. Okay. <laughs> and apparently that experience, whatever that is, that's as old as creation. Uh, because in Genesis chapter 1, you have this pattern that's formed over and over again where God creates by the power of his word. He creates all that is. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the, the light and separates it from the darkness. And he says, this is good. He creates the earth and the plants and the animals and the, all the objects in space. And he says, this is good. He creates uh, humanity and this is very good. But for the first time in the Bible... We have this phrase where God says, whatever this is, it's not good. And that's a man being alone, okay? And anybody who knows that, that's it's not, not the best thing in the world. That like, we, we don't do well by ourselves. That the, the rationale for why woman is created shows that, that mankind was not created to exist in isolation. It's not limited to the marriage relationship. I, I believe this is showing us that, that God creates humanity, to exist in the context of community, to exist in the context of relationships. And so in the same way that the reason man was created is because the ground needed to be cultivated. And that, that's part of the, the design of man, that, that women were created for love, for companionship, for community. Now, that's not to suggest that women are the only relational ones. I don't think that's true, but I, I think it is true that women tend to bring forth relationships in humanity, Right? Because I, I think, honestly, without women, we'd all live in a man cave. We'd all be isolated. We'd all live according to ourselves, and, and that's not a good thing. And so that's actually that, that relational aspect, that relational intelligence, that emotional intelligence that is so commonly associated with the, the female sex is something actually to be celebrated. It's something to be desired and, and viewed as valuable. And, and so I encourage you, husbands, don't make fun of your wife for uh, her proclivity towards relationships or uh, towards emotions just because you have the emotional intelligence of an eggplant. <laughs> that those are good. That's a, that's a necessary function of humanity that is to be able to be celebrated. And so as we continue on in, in verse 18, it's not just good that, that man's not alone that God says he's going to create a helper. And that word helper um, is, is a Hebrew word that at first glance, when we read it in the English translation, that sounds a, a little bit offensive to us because we, we think of helper as a servant. You know, go fetch what I want. Um, the idea here might be that, what is this? Does this mean that somehow women are junior varsity humans? 
that they're the sidekick, that that's their destiny, that's the only reason they exist is to be able to just help out some guy, some dude. And I think in order to understand what that word means, you have to be able to look at what other uses of that word would mean. And so I did that. I looked up all the different uses of the word helper in Hebrew in the Old Testament. And what I noticed was this, is that it's used in a lot of different contexts. The, the second most popular use of the word helper is actually attributed to allies in war. Whenever a king would reach out to another king to be able to, hey, come help, come alongside me as we wage this war together so it can be won. That that's what it means to be a helper. But the number one use of the word helper actually refers to the Lord God himself. Especially you see this throughout the Psalms. And so I'll give you just a a few examples. This is Psalm 30, verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 72, verses 11 and 12. May all the kings fall down before him and all nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side is my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And so this shows us, if this is a term that's going to be applied to God, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the king of all creation, this is an important term. This is not a diminutive word that is to put women down. It's actually to be able to lift women up, to be able to see something that they are, something that they are created to be. It conveys a sense that what needs to be done is impossible without this helper. And if you remember earlier in the series, we, as we've attempted to be able to unfold this complex term that is the Imago Dei, what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God, one of the aspects of being created in the image and likeness of God is to have dominion, to have dominion over the earth, to be able to fill the earth and to subdue it, to be able to look into God's good creation and to unfold it to its fullest potential and to be able to be representatives of God's good kingdom, of God's good reign on earth. And what the Bible is saying here is that man is insufficient to do that alone. That woman must exist, that she brings something to the table that is impossible to do without her presence. And so I encourage you women to be able to to look into your own hearts and to say, what are your desires? What are your unique abilities? What are the opportunities that God's put in front of you? Where are the needs? Because hear this, your help is not just wanted, it's needed. Creation was created for, for you to be present, to be engaged, to be able to bring forth help in the task of humanity. We see later on in the verse that it's not just a helper that's created, but specifically a helper for him. Now, that phrase for him is just one word in the Hebrew, and it means equal, adequate, and a counterpart. The idea here is that men and women differ in sexuality, but they are equals before God as image bearers, that their standing before God is equal. And this is where we begin to see that uh, a term that we use at times in theology that is called a complementarian understanding of gender. Complementarian. Now, the way that that word is derived, it means that men and women are created the same in the sense that they're, they are image bearers of God, but they are image bearers of God in different ways. They are created equally, but they are, and we have to embrace this, they are created differently. 
And that when they exist in harmony with one another, when humanity exists in harmony with men and women together, that actually gives us an ability to be able to see an image of God that's in greater depth. I'd use this illustration. It's entirely possible to be able to see just with one eye. You can close the other one, you can have an eye patch on, and, and you can have see, you can, you, you can actually be able to uh, have vision, you can be able to see what's in front of you. However, you cannot have depth perception without two eyes. You need them both together. In the same way, men and women individually both bear the image of God. Um, they, don't, they don't have to have each other to be able to do that. But whenever they do that together, there is a greater depth to the image of God that is born. It's a bifocal vision for the image of God. And, and you even observe this in how Adam names the creatures. Um, he names all the creatures, and whatever he names them, that's their name. But when the woman comes before Adam, he names her woman. But not only does he give woman a name, he also names himself man. That these names are related but they're also different. In the Hebrew, it's ish and isha. It's, it's a similar term. And what we see there is that, especially in the context of, of marriage, not only do we have a, a deeper depth of being able to understand God more when the two gingers come together, but oftentimes we get to understand ourselves. Adam gives the woman a name, but he also names himself. He gives her an identity, but he also receives an identity in turn. Another point that we can see from this is that the woman is created to be treasured. Tension builds as God observes that this man is not supposed to be alone. You know, you would think the next verse would be, and then he created him a wife, but he doesn't. Instead, what God does is he gives him a massive job. Name all the animals, okay? I wouldn't appreciate that very much if I were Adam. You saw that I was alone. <laughs> you see that I'm isolated. Um, rather than meeting my need immediately, you gave me a job. Um, and so all the animals pass in front of him, and there's this, there's this tension that's mounting and being built. And then she comes. And it's time. Um, God causes Adam to fall asleep. And when he wakes up, he, he sees this woman. And, and something extraordinary happens in the Bible there's a shift from prose all of a sudden into poetry that he actually goes into song. He celebrates her. Um, he loves her. He, he emphasizes that, that, that they're of the same substance, but they're, they're somehow different. And there's a, a glorious reality in that difference that there's loaded even in the imagery of how she's created a, a beautiful vision of how the man and the woman are to relate with one another. This is from the old Puritan pastor, Matthew Henry. He said that the woman was made out of Adam's rib so that she's not made out of his head in order to top him, not made out of his feet in order to be trampled upon by him, but rather out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near to his heart to be beloved. What that, I think, conveys to us, especially in our modern day and age, is that women, you're to value and treasure your distinctiveness. Resist that urge in society that says in order to be valued, in order to get ahead in life, you have to operate, you have to act like an awful man in order to do that. But to be able to actually celebrate who God's created you to be, to celebrate the, the distinctiveness of your gender, and, and likewise, men, that, that means that we are called to be able to, to treasure our brothers, or rather our, our sisters in Christ, to be able to, to honor them, to honor them for their distinctness. As, as friends, 
as fellow church members, and especially for those of you that are married to them, to treasure them for their distinctiveness. However, I think as you go on a little bit later into the Bible, you see something that's even more distinctive about the woman. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man, there's an interesting verse in verse 20 that says this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Eve. It's a word in Hebrew that means life. Adam speaks life to his wife because what has happened is she is conceived and she's born a child and he's noticing something that she can do that he can't. There's this unbelievable mystery. Imagine the the first time that this happened where Adam's figuring out for the first time, wait, people can grow inside of people? That's insane. That's unbelievable that this is something that can actually happen. This is mysterious. This is wonderful. And he calls out of her this this beautiful thing called life, that, that she is a bringer of life. She is one who nourishes life. She's one who protects life. Now, I think it's a vast mistake to be able to say because of that, then therefore womanhood is motherhood, like they're one and the same thing, because that gets us into unbelievable amounts of trouble. That's just, that's not helpful, because some of the best women that I know are not currently mothers by conception. Some of them are adoptive mothers. Some of them are not mothers at all, but I will tell you this. When God authors onto creation this beautiful thing that is pregnancy and childbirth, he is showing us something that is utterly unique and distinct about womanhood. That they are created um, to be able to bring forth life. That they are created to be able to nourish life, to be able to protect life. And that comes in more forms than just simple childbirth. In fact, Gloria Furman, who's a great author, she wrote a book called Missional Motherhood. And she says this, that the essence of motherhood and all womanhood is nurturing life in the face of death. Nurturing life in the face of death. What an unbelievable attribute of womanhood that is to be celebrated. I think of my wife, Kate, when, when I think of this, not just because she's an amazing mom to my little children, um, but this is just something that's so woven into her creation, so woven into her DNA. She actually grew up in Ohio on a farm. Um, her house was right next door to her grandparents' house, and they raised pigs, and she was looking forward to um, being able to see the birth of, of these, these little baby piglets, and one night she woke up because she heard that the, the mama was screaming and was beginning to be able to uh, be able to actually have her little piglets. And she ran down, she got a flashlight, it was dead at night, and, and she heard a moaning by the creek that was in her backyard. And she looked over um, towards the sounds and there was this little piglet that the grandfather had tossed into the creek. And the reason he had tossed the piglet into the creek is because the, the piglet was born with absolutely no eyes, and the, and the pig was moaning and crying, and he had left it to die because he's a farmer. That's what they're going to do. It's inefficient to try to, try to help this one while there's other piglets that need to be delivered. But something inside of her just said, you know, I, I have to take care of this creature. I'm not going to allow this creature to die alone. Um, I, I, I value this life. I want to help this life. I want to comfort this life. I want to nurse this life. And so she took the pig and uh, nursed it to health and named the pig Mona um, for after the circumstances that she found the pig, the, the moaning pig Mona. Um, she did this from time to time. Um, she had apparently had a sheep that was blind and deaf that she named Helen Keller, did the same thing. <laughs> 
And I mean, she really, she would say this. She's a terrible farm girl because she should let these animals die, right? But, but I do think it's, it's something to be remarked upon that whatever that thing is, that is that, that inclination, that instinct towards mercy, towards tenderness, towards being able to, to comfort life, to nourish life in the face of death, whatever that is, that is something that is beautiful about femininity that should be celebrated and valued and, and, and viewed as such a treasured gift to creation. And, and that is why I find it to be such a tragic perversion and irony that oftentimes the thing that we elevate to the, the absolute sacrament of women's liberation is abortion on demand. That it, it is in so many ways a, a mirror reverse of what it's intended to be, what, what womanhood is intended to be. And so I ask to you women, whether you're single, whether you're married, uh, how are you nourishing life in the face of death? In your family, in your relationships, in your friendships, in your home, in your job, in your workplace, that, that this is something that, that you bring to the table that is sacred, that is amazing, that is wonderful. And, and more than that, it does bear the image of God. And that's the thing that you need to be able to see. And, and Jesus was a man. He entered into the world uh, as um, one who was a deity incarnated into a man. However, even Jesus himself shows through his own words how there are attributes of God that are to be understood through the lens of womanhood. Now I'll show you. Matthew 23, verse 37 says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. And listen to this. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. That's astonishing. The, the incarnate Son of God says, you want to understand who God is? You want to understand what He's like? You want to understand who I am? what my character and my nature is, look at a mama hen and the way that she calls her chickens to be underneath the shelter of her wings. That is an image of my love for you. That is an image of, of how I love my people. And so this has huge implications for how we, we value and we celebrate the idea of womanhood. And there's a lot of questions that come from this. Um, there, you see throughout the Bible, uh, a lot of times when womanhood is talked about, there, that there is this homeward orientation, um, that there's, a, there's a, a kind of like a, a gravitational um, pull towards um, marriage relationships and home and, and the relationship within the home. And so people oftentimes ask, well, does that mean that Christians should believe that women can't really work and they can't have jobs, they can't work outside of the home? And I would say absolutely not. Look at the Proverbs 31 woman. That woman is amazing. She goes out in the city and she has all kinds of different industries. She's a woman that is glorified in her diligence and in her dignity. She is one that is even recognized by her city as, as someone that brings something amazing to the culture that is around her. So don't believe that. We, we can honor women with amazing careers and amazing gifts. However, we also need to make sure that we're doing the same thing for women that are at the home that are homemakers, that we celebrate that as well, that we're not going to buy into the cultural lie that in order to be a, a valid person, you have to be able to have a career and a job because otherwise you're really not a successful human being. That's a lie. We can value women who are homemakers that are raising children and discipling little children. We can value women in the workplace at the same time. That, that is to be Christian 
And likewise, we're to value women in the church. The very first proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, do you know who they were? They were women. The first people that witnessed the empty tomb. The first people that received the announcement from the angel that Jesus is alive. And so that means that that women are to be valued, to be treasured in the church, that we're, we're called to be able to celebrate the design of womanhood. But point number two is this, the brokenness of womanhood. As we saw last week with man, that which was beautiful and good and designed by God has been broken, has been shattered by sin. Last week we talked about manhood. We talked about selfish passivity, an act of aggression, and, and how those two ideas are, are ways that we see in the Bible how the brokenness of manhood is displayed. Today I want to suggest two ways that the brokenness of womanhood is particularly displayed, and that is through comparison and through control. The first point on comparison, where you see this, is in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent slithers into God's good garden into a marriage that was good, into creation that was good. And he begins to speak to the woman. And he talks to her and says, hey, there's a tree over here. Are you pretty sure you can't eat that? She says, no, 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 I'm not supposed to eat it. I'm not even supposed to touch it because I'm going to die if I do. The snake says, no, 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 no. You're not going to die. That's not going to happen. But I'll tell you what, God doesn't want you to be able to, to eat of that fruit. Because if you did, you'd become better than you are right now. You'd become like God. You would become better than whatever it is you are right now. And she believes this lie. She rebels against God. And as a result, unbelievable brokenness and fracturing enters into creation. And what I I want you to understand is this, especially to the women. The lie of the serpent is that God can't be trusted And that there is something flawed in the way that he has created you. That you're not good enough. That something's wrong with you. And so look for ways that you can be better. Look around you. Look at some of the other people that are around you. And and look for ways that, that maybe you can be a better person. A way that you can be able to, to earn that, that validation that you crave. And so here's how I would define that besetting sin that is comparison. Comparison is measuring one's worth against another. It's revealed by chronic insecurity, body image issues, competitiveness, gossip, eating disorders, and the insatiable need to be validated. And that is a sin that if you allow it, will create brokenness and death in your life. It's something that that women have to be able to acknowledge in themselves. And and by the way, that's not just a, hey, well, you're a Christian talking from the Bible, but why in the world would I need to listen to what you have to say about this idea that's unbelievably offensive to women? By the way, feminist psychologists, and there is such thing, actually observe the same thing about women. It's actually been remarked upon um, recently and, and written about that oftentimes when women are dressing and they're concerned about their body image, who they are primarily dressing for is not the men in their life, but the women. They want to be able to be validated by, they want to be able to be seen by other women because that in some ways is who they're competing with. That's who they're trying to be able to measure their worth against. This is author Emily V. Gordon of the New York Times. She writes this, not a Christian, by the way, we aren't competing with other women, ultimately, but with ourselves. 
with how we think of ourselves. For how many of us, we look at other women and see instead of a version of ourselves that is better, prettier, smarter, something more, we don't see other women at all. That, that's, a, that's a truth that even people in culture would be able to say. And, and so um, I actually even think that this is particularly a dangerous age to live in in regards to this besetting sin. And when you think of the idea of comparison, um, what worse thing could you do to your soul than get on Facebook and Instagram all the time to see all the different people, all the pretty people and all their wonderful vacations and what they're cooking and what they're eating and all the different places they're going, all the wonderful things that they've been able to achieve. And, and we measure ourselves and our worth by the culture standards and by what culture is thinking is valuable really than what God is saying. And it doesn't make us feel better about ourselves. It makes us feel worse. We post the selfies. And I'm saying we metaphorically. I don't post selfies. But think about that. How easy it would be to measure work with likes and your validation, a way to quantify that idea. What better way to be able to inflame your sense of insecurity than to be able to look at something like Pinterest that shows you all the different things that you need to be able to cultivate and bring into your life in order to be able to, to be okay. And what happens is when we fail, what we do when we feel bad about ourselves, it leads to gossip. It leads to bringing other women down and trying to justify ourselves. We bring judgment on others. And when that doesn't work, we hate ourselves and bring judgment upon ourselves through eating disorders, through all kinds of various ways of self-harm. And God is saying that release yourself of, of that bitter way of life because that gives brokenness not just to you but to, to even others that are around you. The second manifestation of brokenness in woman is control. And where you see that very specifically is whenever God is speaking to the woman and he's describing to her the ramifications, the consequences of her sin. He says this in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Genesis. The woman said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And that's an aspect of brokenness that enters into creation because of this. And you can look at experience, and you can look at history, and you can see that, yeah, childbirth is painful. Um, apparently, I've been in the room three times, it seems to be the case. And patriarchy, in a perverse form, can be unbelievably damaging to societies and to peoples. And there's still cultures today that you can see vivid, vivid reminders of how broken it can be and how, how awful it can be. But I think the, the true essence here is what happens between the relationship between the man and the woman, that her desire is going to be for her husband, and that's, that's a statement of opposition, but that he's going to rule over her. There's, there's a breakdown in that harmony that we see earlier in chapter 2. What happens is, oftentimes men um, can do two things to women. In their brokenness, when they're passively withdrawing, when they're being selfish, when they're being aggressive towards women to get what they want from women, what happens is that women crave that sense of validation in such a way that they'll either idolize a man, and that man will turn into her functional savior, her functional messiah, that that's the person, his love is what's going to make me complete and whole, his love is what's going to make me worthwhile. Or women will demonize men. 
Okay, they're all the same. They're all wicked. They're all awful. And oftentimes when they idolize men and men fail them, that turns into demonizing. And what, what happens is a type of vicious cycle that has started where there's a breakdown in relationship. And oftentimes the result of that is, is women get into a pattern of life that says, you know what? I can't trust men. All they're going to do is hurt me. They're all wrong. They're all wicked. And so the natural result of that is I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to get done what I need to be able to get done. Um, I'm going to, at times, even diminish men with my words, talk bad about them to them, talk bad about them when they're not there. Um, And I'm I'm going to basically say uh, the only person that I can trust is myself. And what ends up happening is an unbelievable sense of control begins to be a craving that builds and builds and builds and builds to where you're trying to constantly control the uncontrollable. And if you want an easy way to be able to self-diagnose if that's happening in your life, probably the best symptom is chronic anxiety. Because what happens when you try to control the uncontrollable is you get very anxious. You get very fearful. You think about all the hypotheticals and what could be able to go wrong. And that, that fear leads to a destructiveness. And one of the ramifications of that is your relationships are, are filled not just with fear, but with conflict. How the Bible describes it is this way. This is Proverbs twenty-one nineteen. It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Quarrelsome and fretful. That's a woman that has to control. A woman who, who has to be able to, to be in charge because... Oftentimes, as a result of the brokenness of man, that's the coping mechanism that she's been able to develop. And that can seem like a humorous verse, and in some ways it is, saying, man, whatever you got going on here, I would rather you walk out into a desert and die than be in that situation. Like, I mean, it's an unbelievable contrast, but it is saying something that, that the woman who was created to be able to bring forth and nourish life has now become a source of death. And the result of this is not just pain, not just bitterness and anxiety, but we see specifically in Genesis is alienation. The man and the woman who were at one point in time completely exposed and vulnerable with one another, they sew fig leaves together to be able to cover themselves up because they, they're afraid of hurting one another. They're afraid of, of being exposed. They're afraid of actually being seen and known by one another and even more importantly, known by God because they know that something's flawed within them. They know that something is broken and they're afraid of being rejected. And so sin always causes alienation. It causes alienation in our relationship with God. It causes alienation in our relationship with each other. So that leads us to point number three, the redemption of womanhood. When we see that brokenness in ourselves, we, we need to be able to see very clearly a call towards repentance. But more than just a call towards repentance, we have to be able to recognize we can't do that in our own strength. We can't do that in our own power. And the reason is that there is something radically wrong with us. And the lesson we learn from this is that when we believe the serpent, what we fear becomes reality. When we fear the serpent, or when we believe the serpent, rather, what we fear becomes reality. When we buy into that lie, that, that's what happens. And so Eve believed the lie. We believe the lie. And now there really is something flawed and broken about us. That we need redemption that is not possible for us to be able to do for ourselves. One of the most powerful images in the Bible, I think, is Ezekiel chapter 16, where 
the people of God are prepared are compared in, in, in a way to a woman that is dirty and broken. She's left alone. She is abandoned in the midst of a desert. And God comes to her as a bridegroom. And he takes her to himself and he loves her. And she grows into an unbelievably beautiful, gorgeous woman. But in that, that place of, of being faithfully loved, what she does is she betrays her bridegroom. She betrays God. She begins to commit adultery over and over and over again. Specifically with false gods. With idols. And that's what God compares our sin to. When we bow down and when we worship things like sex or body image or success or money or substance, that we are ultimately going not just towards a sin, but we're going to a substitute God. And God compares that to an act of spiritual adultery. And God calls it out for what it is, for the wickedness of sin, but he also says something profound and amazing. He promises that, nevertheless, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to love you. And I am going to make you whole. And that's why the gospel of grace is so unbelievably extraordinary, is that it is a gospel of grace. Another image of a broken woman appears in John chapter 4, where there is this woman who's broken. She's rejected. She's been used and abused by men. It's a hot day, it's at noon, when no one wants to walk outside, and that's when this woman comes to a water well to be able to get water for herself, and there she meets and encounters Jesus. And they get into a little bit of a theological debate about the nature of worship, and Jesus dives beneath all the issues of her heart, and he says, I know who you are. I know that you've been married many times. I know that you've been used and abused. And I know that the, the man that you're with right now is not your husband. You're, you're constantly trying to go to these other wells in life to be able to, to quench that thirst, that need to be validated. You're comparing yourself. You're controlling. You're, you're doing all these things that are exemplifying your brokenness. But in that moment, when Jesus sees her, when Jesus exposes her, he also does something profound. He offers to her a drink of the living water. That nevertheless, in your worst moment, in the depths of your brokenness, and the most filthy aspect of who you are, it's in that moment that Christ died for you. It's in that moment that Christ redeems you. And it's the power of that amazing love that flows from grace that not only has the ability to inspire you to be a vaguely better person, that has the power to renew you, to redeem you, to make you whole. And that's what Christ does for us today, that he is the true and better bridegroom, that he not only sacrificed himself and laid down his life for us, but that he cleanses us by the washing of water with the word. And when we hear that gospel truth, and when that gospel truth washes over us, it cleanses us, it makes us new. And we see a, a redemption begin to occur. And it is ironic, by the words, take and eat, Eve let death into the world. Take and eat, take and eat this fruit. But it's on the cross that Jesus Christ tasted death on our behalf. And now the words, take and eat, invite us to taste redemption. They invite us to taste salvation, to be able to partake, not in death, but in life. And so today, as we prepare 
to take the Lord's Supper and to remember this meal that, that is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I pray, Redeemer, that we would be a people that, that not only have a better understanding of manhood and womanhood and aspire to be these things and encourage these things out of one another, but that we would be a people that would open our hearts to the Holy Spirit, that he might shed abroad in our hearts the infinite love that God has given us through Christ his Son. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have loved us when we're unlovely, that you have loved us in our brokenness, and that your love makes us whole. Lord, I pray for those that are in here that are wounded and broken and hurt. I pray that not only today would you shine a light on on maybe some self-awareness of things that we're doing in our life that are creating brokenness, but I pray by the grace of Jesus Christ that you would also heal us, that you would wash us with your words of grace, that we would be able to not only know about your love or hear about your word, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would allow us to experience that love, that it would wash us, that it would make us new. So, Father, I thank you that today that you make that provision available to us, that we are invited to taste and see that you are good. In that place of recognizing and tasting and seeing your goodness, we are transformed and made new. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. for listening to this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com.